This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. to everybody out there that is listening to this podcast. How are you? I cannot answer that question. I guess you can't answer that question to me, I should say. Uh, but I hope you guys are having a great day. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse. Welcome to another episode of Do Not Listen, the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. And I want to open this up on an unrelated note to the topic we're going to talk about today, which I'm fascinated by, and I had a phenomenally great time writing this article, actually. It was, I, I loved it. So we'll get to that in a second, obviously. But I want to just open up by saying... Thank you to everyone that has supported and you know either shared, liked, commented, given me personal feedback on the announcement of my upcoming book, Value Economics, Study of Identity, going to be released on June 28th, 2022 through all digital platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ebook, audiobook, wherever you get your audiobooks, your glue and paper books, your whatever the fuck you stream or buy shit through. It is going to be on all of those platforms. We are formalizing the listing right now. A lot of things are happening behind the scene. And I just want to say thank you guys for just the overwhelming support and good positivity that we have seen throughout this whole, you know, I'm not big on positivity, but it seems like we really, really hit this one on the head here. It seems like my team at Scribe, the people that I work with through out the publishing company, I made sure to highlight them in all posts. I apologize if I miss people, but I wanted to make sure that I was getting the most accurate information out there. So again, Value Economics Study of Identity, my book coming out on June 28th, 2022, in about five five weeks from uh, this upcoming Tuesday when this podcast comes out. It is about how to develop a system of individual values, how to use them to help yourself properly in the world, how to interact with the world, how to not be a shitty person. Kind of an all-encompassing book that really kind of meanders through my personal philosophy on how to create individual values that I've learned from a lot of people, both in the culture, my family, my friends, a bunch of different things. And I think that people are going to like it. I think that you're going to like it. I think it's applicable to everybody, no matter what you believe, what you think about things, who you are, what you are, what you look like, what you don't look like, whatever. I think it's a very, very applicable topic. It's a very pertinent topic, especially to the younger folks who are just starting out in life who really don't have this much of a personal compass yet. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you once again for all the support that you have given throughout various channels, whether it be through my social media, my LinkedIn, my um, my Instagram, everything else that has come about through all this, or, you know, most importantly, the people who have directed their feedback to me personally, reached out to me, said that they're rooting for me, everything else. It really, really does mean a lot. So wanted to start that off with a thank you again, value economics, study of identity coming out June 28th, 2022, five weeks from this upcoming Tuesday. So it's crazy. It's already happening, but, uh, more announcements to come on that behalf. The link to order, by the way, will be posted at a later date. So the topic of this week, 
I have wanted to talk about the topic of utopianism for a long time. I think that utopianism, uh, the prospect of utopia, is probably something that I, I have been fascinated about this topic for probably the most, the majority of my adult life, going back from, or actually not even my adult life, my teenage life, like growing up and seeing like what is utopia, what this concept is, the concept of escape, people trying to get to their version of utopia, kind of what they're trying to do with all this stuff. The political spectrum has a lot to do with this, you know, the savior complex, everything else. And I watched something, as you can tell by the title, I watched the show Euphoria. Thank, uh, shout out to my friend Hannah Stewart, who uh, finally got me on the bandwagon. And it turns out that like literally everyone had seen that show but me. So I'm glad that she nudged me in that direction. And that was kind of the straw that really broke the camel's back on kind of getting me the catalyst to talk about this topic. Because I think the main theme of Euphoria has a, to be very blunt about it, it's a referendum on utopianism. And I think that's a very, very fascinating subject to get into because there's so much talk around so much around the subject. So it's going to be kind of a very existential post. It's going to be kind of going all over the place. I've done a couple of these before. I think I took a big risk with this one, but I love doing that because I think it stretches me, it pushes me, it pushes the audience, pushes you guys. And I think at the end of the day, with my non-coherent meandering and rambling aside, I think that it's a very, very good, and I don't say that about my stuff all the time. I think, you know, a lot of my stuff turns out to be average in the long run, but I think this is going to be a pretty insightful argument into what utopia is, what euphoria is, kind of everything else, and really combining culture and a prospect that we all want to believe is real together to make a pretty convincing argument in the other direction, at least in my opinion. So that being said, here we go. Part one, vice. The great disappointment of all of our lives occurs when we realize that the world is broken. It is this, the removal of our innocence, that shakes us. It makes us doubt. It invokes fear and panic. It causes us, ourselves, to become broken. Our lives, and the people that comprise their most important elements, are full of sin and vice. Normally, these get peeled away throughout the years. These concepts are layered. They're deep. They're complicated. I sense that's why, at least in a way, this realization of our shattered existence harms us in such a deep way. All of our lives were so oriented towards the world not being this way. We are raised, especially in America, or a place like America, excuse me, to believe in optimism. We are brought up to think that we live in a special place, that nothing can harm us. We do live in a special place. America is certainly that. It makes us very unique on the world stage. But what also makes us unique is the bizarre way that this manifests in our culture. We don't want to come to this realization because we know what happens when we do. Sin and vice are meant to harm us. They are meant to corrupt what was once a pristine ocean of vague positivity and turn it into a placid and ravenous whirlpool of sorrow. In previous generations, this was unavoidable. Until the world became modernized, people were in full awareness of this. People died younger. More of their children perished in brutal fashion. Disease and death were commonplace. Most infections and injuries resulted in permanent loss of ability via amputation or eradication. To reach old age was to be a celebration, not a commodity like it is now. But as things got better, as society improved, a new ideology began to rise beneath the surface. That new ideology served one purpose. It had a singular goal, one that, on paper, could not be denied as anything but harmless and noble. It was parroted throughout the masses as a fringe theory, but soon became orthodoxy, even religious, to the few that could radically espouse its same values. 
the eradication of vice. However, just because something is popular, even though in actuality it really wasn't, does not mean that it's a good thing. That, in a way, was the beauty of this theory. How could you possibly oppose the eradication of vice from the world? Are you saying that you want people to suffer? You must be a part of the problem, and henceforth, you must be destroyed. The main perpetrator and spreader of this ideology were the easiest to manipulate. Young people. The primary reason for this was that young people were the ones that were closest to the genesis of their in initial innocence due to their age. The reason that children are such marvelous beings is because they are blissfully ignorant to what the world truly contains. As espoused by Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, the true wish of every parent is for their children to be fools. Young people, who know nothing of the intricacy of the world's brokenness, have a natural tendency to want to remove vice from the world. They derive simple answers from simple causes. They believe that through their own actions. They can impose themselves and their values on the world in such a way that everyone will seemingly get, a get along with what they plan. Being poisoned by this ideology, they don't care. They'll get on board. They have to. If they don't, that must make them our enemy. And enemies must not be tolerated. A good portion of this, when not taken to absolutes, is excusable behavior. Most young people experience these feelings and will admit to them if they're honest. Put simply, this demographic of folks has not had the level of life experience to even dip a toe into the horror that they will eventually face when encountering the world. To compound this effect, the leaders and primary perpetrators of this ideology willingly keep them in the dark to shield them. Poison must take time to seep in. Every second counts. This is the trap that Daisy Buchanan talked about in regards to her young daughter, that of blindness. Experience deliberately enables people to see. It only is a matter of time that the, or matter of that individual should they want to look at it or not. They know it's real. They know that it exists. All that matters from the outset is whether or not that they have the courage to take that information for what it's truly worth. Most people don't. They hide among those unwanted things in the fog of their own willful ignorance. Better to stuff it away then confront it. This fog can manifest itself in multiple ways. One way is to simply ignore it, to pretend that there is nothing there. But that never works, at least in the long term. Human beings are incredibly perceptive creatures. We know when something isn't what it's supposed to be. We can smell bullshit a mile away. There is no use ignoring something that we know is there. Vice cannot be thrown easily to the wayside. But there is another solution. One that has been used time and time again across the ages. A lot of the time, it happens unwillingly. We just casually slip in and out as quick and as swift as falling asleep every night. After a while, we can't help it. It becomes a part of us. It becomes so ingrained in our souls that it begins to become the first thing that comes to mind for others. Fighting fire with fire. It's not enough to turn a blind eye. What works better is blinding yourself. The way to blind yourself to vice, to shield yourself from the hell that surrounds you and has, in many ways, defined all of our lives, is to engage in vices themselves. You may have grown up with trauma in your family, so you perpetuate that harm onto others in different ways. You deal with your husband stepping out on you by downing a couple bottles of wine a week. You cope with not getting any women to message you first on Bumble by bobbing dab pens and Taco Bell every night after work. Drugs, unconstrained sexual activities, and the other things of the like are no different than those in the world that we blame others for. The only difference is that it is us doing these things, and not the people that we accuse of being so bad. The ones that are, quote, responsible for the world being as it is. The ones who, quote, let things go by the wayside. 
We cannot take responsibility for the world's problems, so we simply blame everyone else who is not us. These people, the ones who fight vice with vice, play a dangerous game. They believe that they are so much on the right side of their skewed perception of both the past and present that they don't realize the damage they are causing. Not just to themselves. They didn't care about themselves much to begin with. It's the damage to others that matters more. The thing that is so dangerous about being an entitled narcissist is that it opens up the people around you to an individualized prescription of harm. This is especially awful to do to someone else, because you end up destroying the one thing that they never thought could be. You. Our society has a uniquely privileged and uniquely terrifying problem. We see the problems in the world, vice and sin. We don't know how to deal with them. We settle for dealing with them by delving deeper into vice and sin to blind us from having to face the actual realities of the problems that are occurring. We blame people for the same things that we end up doing. The ultimate question of all this? Why? The reason for doing all of this, for indulging in vice while simultaneously condemning it, is exactly what we mentioned before. We want to alleviate suffering, but we don't want to embrace the possibility, the impossibility, of that same proposition. We know that it is a lie. We know that it is false. If we look at it, we know. But due to our own purposeful blindness, we can force ourselves to not see. We can force ourselves not to look. We can force ourselves to remain ignorant to the worst thing in the world, to those who depend on us. Excuse me. We can force ourselves to remain the worst thing in the world to those that depend on us. Ignorant. However, there's a philosophical realization among all that catastrophe. It dawns on us like the morning sun and scalds us like a burning flame. It both emboldens us and enlightens us. It illuminates a path while at the same time propelling us forward with a sense of severe and unrelenting urgency. It reveals itself to be a goal, one that is so thirst-quenching, so deeply satisfying, that we cannot help to test its proposition in the frothy waters of its anonymity. It is a daring expedition, one that they know will be impossible to reach. But in the name of trying, in the name of their stated goal, they must attempt it. They must cross the cold and crushing ocean, the bleak and starving abyss of nothingness, to attempt to seize what they falsely believe to be theirs. And that goal is this. The ultimate goal, the only way to alleviate the sin and vice that has corrupted their once innocent and perfect world, is to eradicate everything. It is to crush and eliminate anything that gets in the way of their desired state of being. Because, in the end, they are the ones that know what's right. The rest of us, those who don't have the privilege of seeing the world through their same uniquely rose-tinted glasses, simply don't understand. Because we can't understand. That's the point. That's the reason why everything must change. That is the reason why it all must go. The reason why vice must be beaten with vice is that it's the only way to do what must be done. The people that believe in this mindset understand this. They know what the, they undertake is impossible given their current reality. Which is exactly why they have to create a new one. The old one is outdated, scarred, and forsaken. They cannot turn back because they refuse to fix what is broken, including themselves. Instead, they must create something infinitely better for themselves. But, as they will soon find out for themselves and for others... The monster that they have unleashed upon the world will be much worse than they could have ever imagined. Utopia.
Part two, utopia. The concept of utopianism is nothing new. The attempts and motivations to create a utopian society aren't either. It's almost wired inside of our brains, something that we probably couldn't shake if we tried. Human beings are set to a default setting, in a sense. We see things that are wrong in the world. We see things that can be made better. We want to improve them, to make them right. This is the curve of improvement and progress that so many people, no matter what their view of that of or on that improvement and progress is, speak of. It is a noble pursuit, and one that we probably couldn't shake from our systems even if we tried. Why are humans like this? Why do humans desire things in the first place? Repetition is certainly a good place to start. The most powerful concept in the world is an idea. We may be able to build weapons and factories and cars and armies, but the act of building has to come from somewhere more metaphysical first. There must be a genesis. And conveniently, it is genesis where this idea was first spread to the masses. Human beings, as we've covered before, are religious by default. Even if you consider yourself agnostic or atheist, you are religious. You are wired to have God values and place things at the center of your universe. Hopefully there will be something good and not terribly destructive. But there must be something there. The only reason that people are able to bear suffering is because there has to be something else that outweighs that suffering. Without that counterweight, people begin to fall out of balance and succumb to the horrors of life. That's where feelings of hopelessness come from. It's never a good place to reside. But before humans were exposed to the multitudes of religions and their corresponding values, there was one dominant strain that initially populated the world, Judeo-Christianity. In the book of Genesis, the followers of this religion and these values are exposed to the first version of Utopia, Eden. Eden was created by God as a slice of heaven put onto earth. In that garden resided everything good that God created to populate the world. Fruits, vegetables, plants, clean water, animals, and humans. Suffering was non-existent. There was nothing inside of those walls that could harm anything, including its two residents, Adam and Eve. But the most powerful part of the story of Eden is not the fall. It is what happens to Adam and Eve, or after, excuse me, Adam and Eve eat the fruit that ultimately leads to their expulsion, sin entering the world, and heaven on earth being sealed off by God. It is this question. How does that possibility even happen? That's a really good question if you think about it. If Eden, if Utopia, was a so-called perfect place, how in the world did the serpent enter to tempt Eve in the first place? The answer, to the best of my knowledge, does not reside in the text. The key, however, is in the breakdown of the context we have to work with. When God made Adam and Eve, he told them that they could eat anything in the garden except for the fruit off of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, what in the fuck was that tree doing in there in the first place? If there is such thing as a, quote, perfect place, Eden certainly was not it. The possibility wouldn't even be there. It wouldn't have even been a thought. He just wouldn't have put it there. He is God, after all. He can do these things. The second catalyst to the fall is even more puzzling. The serpent, an outsider, enters the garden to tempt Eve in eating the forbidden fruit. He plays on her hubris and robs her of her innocence. She later does the same thing unknowingly when she convinces Adam to do the same. Again, why in the actual fuck is the serpent, quite literally Satan in this story, allowed inside of a, quote, perfect place? It makes no sense in the reality of the world. Utopia is a perfect place. 
Perfect places do not, do not result in people getting kicked out of the garden, sin entering in the world, men having to struggle while working, women having to feel pain while giving birth, and a gigantic fu- flaming fucking sword sealing off paradise from being entered by humans ever again. That is not what I imagine most people thinking of when they imagine a perfect place, in my estimation. I'm far from a theologian, but I have a theory that is outside the mainstream on this critical story that shaped not only Judeo-Christianity, but the rest of the world. The word utopia has two primary definitions. The first definition is, quote, the perfect place. The second and lesser known definition is, quote, the place that cannot be. Think about that for a second. It's the perfect place, but also the place that cannot be. Why are those two definitions the most commonly used? The answer? They're the same definition. The definition for the word perfect is, quote, being entirely without fault or defect, satisfying all requirements. As far as I know, there is nothing in the world that fits this definition. No person, place, nor thing. Everything, no matter how high in reverence that you hold it, has flaws. The only conceivable things that do not are gods, and if you're a fan of Greek mythology, you know how much fuckery goes on in that clan of demi-folks. If you're honest with yourself and whatever you're comparing to, you know this will not be the case. So, what is the point of the literal second story in the most foundational and important text in the history of civilization? Again, I'm far from a theologian, and most likely much farther from God himself. But I don't believe that God, or in a direct biblical sense, whoever wrote the shit down, was showing that a place like Eden is possible. I believe that God was showing us that a place like Eden is impossible. The point of the story of the fall is to show that there cannot be a place like Eden, even Eden. The proof of this is in the story itself. Eden is not perfect because Eden itself eventually becomes corrupted, first by the temptation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and second by the the serpent and Satan being allowed in to lead Adam and Eve to remove their innocence and discover sin. That is not a perfect place. That is a place that cannot be. Yet Eden stands throughout history as perhaps the greatest example of, quote, utopia in the history of humanity. Why? In my opinion, it is because humans have hope that this is possible. Everything that happens after Eden is a reflection of that hope. It's about the people that follow God and his word to try to get back to that, quote, perfect place. To try to get to the point where they were in God's good graces. To get to the point where they could not be harmed by vice and sin that was caused by Adam and Eve's initial transgression. But, even if you're not a Christian, you know how deep within yourself that this is impossible. That it cannot be. Because you, nor any institution that you are a part of, is. There will always be things that seep through the cracks. Eden may have looked perfect, but the tree and the serpent were still able to corrupt it. They were able to bring down the walls that held up that ivory tower. They were able to fulfill the true wish of God and show that, no matter how much you want to believe things can be, They really cannot be. That is the point. That is the emphasis. That is the true Genesis. So why haven't humans learned their lesson? Why do we still try to improve at all? Why can't we just deal with it? Why do we still try, and in the extreme, aggressively try, to create our own versions of utopia, the place that cannot be? The answer to this question lies embedded within the other question. The reason why we try to reach utopia 
why we try to shed the world of vice and sin in favor of an impossible one without either is because human beings are inherently broken, flawed, and sinful. There is no getting around this fact. We're all, for lack of a better word, fuck-ups in our own individual fuck-uppery ways. Human beings are not gods. We cannot see everything, especially not everything that is wrong with ourselves. Only a completely omniscient presence can create a perfect, or in the case of Eden, deliberately imperfect, world. Humans are none of these things. We don't have nearly the mental capacity to even fathom what something like this would look like. We don't even know how to straighten our own shit out half the time. What could possibly give us the right to attempt something bigger than that? Since we are none of these things, we commit to the most devastating act of human inadequacy of all. We willingly try to impose our limited value structure on an unlimited sample size. This is a horrendous thing to do at a group level, particularly when you're trying to create a quote, utopian society. The primary reason for this is that no one ever thinks exactly the same about everything. A white supremacist and a Black Lives Matter activist have differences if you weren't aware. This is the main issue with identity politics and the diminishing of individualism in our modern culture. By the way, Value Economics Study of Identity out June 28th, 2022. But aside the point. Who is someone to tell a black person what they are supposed to act like? A woman. A transgender woman. A lesbian dance theorist. The answer to that question is that they do not have that right. At all. Anyone who tries to superimpose a theoretical act of value structure onto an individual person isn't doing so in the name of activism. They're doing so in the name of tyranny. They're deliberately crushing the individual in favor of the collective. We've tried that numerous times throughout the 20th century, and ended up slaughtering hundreds of millions. I think most would find it wise to avoid using that option in future attempts. But us humans cannot help ourselves, it seems. We see the brokenness in the world. We see that other people see the same thing. This is the synthesis that leads to the creation of our hope. We know that other people recognize what we recognize and see what we see. It opens up that door that Adam and Eve and all the totalitarians of the past saw. The door to a, quote, better society. One, quote, without those things. One that could be referenced again and again as the, quote, turning point to create something that would ascend past what we thought possible. In other words, we see a utopia. In this utopia, in this fallacy, in this flaw in our own brain chemicals, we see a world in which we would be the heroes. A world in which there will be no more vice and no more pain and no more suffering. We attempt to create heaven, elysium, enlightenment. Anyone who stands in the face of that reality, of our new reality, is simply a hindrance. They want the suffering to continue. They think that they would like nothing, we think, that they would like nothing more. But there is a twist to this, as we mentioned earlier. In doing so, in engaging in the act of utopianism, of thing that perfect exists when it really cannot be, they have to indulge further in their own individual vices. You must fight fire with fire, shoot back when others are shooting at you. There are many forms that this can take. It can take the form of deeply personal vice, emotional instability and inability to deal with their own problems and unnecessary insecurities all fit this billing. It can also take the form of worldly vice. They can engage in alcoholism, drown themselves in gluttonous rampages, and fuck anything that isn't gluttonous to oblivion. To deal with the suffering of the world, they must first deal with their own suffering in order to make a vague attempt to justify that of the world's. But humans are not stupid. Far from it. Our hope can lead us to doing stupid things, but it cannot deny, by itself deny us of our intelligence. People over time begin to see that propositions such as these are impossible. We cannot make things perfect. We are not gods. 
We cannot wash the world clean of all that poisons it. We are just one person. We cannot make anything bend to our will. Over time, we realize that we wouldn't want it to. We feel conflicted by this. On one hand, we're relieved. We can finally shed a heavy burden that we know we couldn't bear the weight of. We can relax. On the other hand, we're immensely disappointed because we hoped and we wanted so much for it to be true. The world lets us down. We can't reconcile it. We don't know what to do now that we know for certain that we cannot fix the problem we were so desperately trying to solve. So we turn inwards. We turn towards the self. We turn towards the only thing that our hope can still cling to preserving. We want to save some aspect of the dream that we once had, but, unlike this one, one that we think cannot, will not, fail us. We turn to the one thing that can sustain us, give us our last and final hope for utopia. Euphoria. Part 3. Euphoria. If realizing that the world is a broken place removes our innocence from us, the realization that we are all participants in that brokenness, that we cannot have utopia, absolutely terrifies us. We realize that we all are part of the problem. We realize that we cannot contribute to worldly perfection because we ourselves are not perfect. We realize that all of our thoughts that led to this false reality are futile. They cannot be fulfilled. We wasted two of our most precious resources, energy and time, on something that can't happen. This is a disappointing realization in any context, and much more so in one that was so grounded in something so adventurous and noble in the pursuit of utopia. We don't like our efforts to be unfulfilled and wasted. We don't like the fact that, for most of us, our dreams cannot be filled, though we must deal with the uninspiring of mundane aspects of everyday life. Everyday life, however, is not a bad thing. Most people, including most of us and certainly me, live in a day in and day out. They have throughout history. I think most humans who have lived can attest that it wasn't at least outwardly horrible. We'd have a lot more clubbing themselves to death and throwing themselves onto spears if this was the case, and thank God that it wasn't. This is a very curious thing when you look at it. Our culture, especially younger people, seem to live in paralyzing fear of living a, quote, basic life. They don't only dislike ordinary people, they revile them. They're afraid of them. Our culture has promoted a highlight reel, a roller coaster whose hill keeps climbing upwards. There's no fall. There's no process. There's no showing the other side of the story. There is only excess, the constant climbing of the hill. No satisfaction can be reached because there is nothing beneficial to us that can result from our satisfaction. But, as we mentioned, there is still one thing that we think can give us what we want. There is still one isolated hope of our utopia coming true in one form. There is still one thing that we can lean extra hard into to make our dreams a reality. Utopianism, even though it always fails in mass, still has hope. Us. Utopianism, in our current frame of mind, can still come true. But there's a caveat. It can only come true at the individual level. It can only be found inside of ourselves and our lives. And it must be enforced the same means as above, through vice and sin. Only through vice and sin can we alleviate the sins of the world. Only then can we enshrine ourselves into true blindness and blissful ignorance. Only then can we experience euphoria.
Euphoria is one of the biggest television hits of the last decade. It's the second most streamed show on HBO after Game of Thrones, which if you haven't noticed is a pretty fucking big deal. I had almost no idea that the show existed until I saw a clip from your mom's house and got a recommendation from a friend. Again, shout out Hannah Stewart. That recommendation, which quickly turned into an incessant recommendation, again, shout out to Hannah Stewart, eventually caused me to cave and finally watch the show that seemingly everyone had been talking about but me. So I figured I'd watch. If this makes me basic, so be it. Because Euphoria fucking rocked my shit. I have never seen anything like it before. Never in a show been so blatantly transgressive in so many different ways. Sons of Anarchy pushed limits far. But Euphoria pushed a different type of limit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most shows that really go out there to show that depravity within humanity do it within the context of adult circles. Never before had anyone dared to do what Sam Levinson did and made it about a bunch of high school-aged children. His balls must be gigantic. Maybe imagines one of his fictional teenagers sucking on them from time to time. For those who have never seen the show, Euphoria is a coming-of-age drama based on the current experience of high school students in modern America. However, this is not like Sixteen Candles or The Breakfast Club. It is not a John Hughes movie. This is a raw and completely unfiltered look at what teenagers in 2022 have America, America have to deal with constantly. It's striking how accurate most of it is. I wasn't one long ago, if you, dare, if you care to remember. On the outside, like me before I watched it, you may have been thinking to yourself, so what? I've seen teenage dramas before, and they've been suspenseful and all that. What makes this one so different and so popular? Well, nudity would be one. Like, 35 different dicks in one scene type nudity. 35 different dicks. Think about that for a second. And reminder, these are teenagers. Watching a fictional 17-year-old girl having an orgasm while riding a carousel isn't the best thing to talk about around the water cooler, I wouldn't think. I don't think bringing it up to your in-laws that you watch teenagers fuck each other every night while they're with their daughter would ease their opinion on your marriage. Again, 35 dicks in a scene, folks. Think about that. 35 dicks. Unbelievable. Unprecedented. Besides the nudity and the sex, there are the drugs. Oh, the drugs. The main character, Rue, is a drug addict who is recovering from an overdose. She also serves as the narrator of the show, being the omniscient presence that gives the rest of the show its color and context. She knows everything about everyone, from how they grew up to their current transgressions to why they feel the way they feel to the 35 fucking dicks that are in this show in one scene. Amazing. Sound familiar? It should, because it's what we just talked about when we discussed Utopia. The only person that can create a utopia, a perfect world, is God, or a God if you're not a Christian. Heaven is the only utopia. Elysium, the heaven of the ancient Greeks, is one as well. Many others can manifest depending on the religion you choose to source from. The person that creates that utopia must be omniscient. They must know everything about everyone. So why is Rue able to do this in Euphoria? Because she is the most broken. The data is in. Gen Z is a broken generation. Our world has failed them. They're not going to recover, at least holistically. They've been fucked by many things, and have fucked themselves as a repercussion of those many things. This is not giving into toxic victimhood and the weak side of the toughness gap, because those are things that can be overcome. The reality of the situation is much more dire. Social media came out of nowhere. COVID came out of nowhere. Our ruling class and the repercussions came out of nowhere. The financial crisis came out of nowhere. And no one protected Gen Z from any of it. No one saw it coming. They were completely blindsided by a monstrous typhoon of shit that no one prepared them for. And because of that, we are now only seeing the tip of the iceberg of the myriad of consequences that are arising from all these things beginning to bear fruit. Euphoria's genius is in its honesty. 
The reason that the show is so good is that it is accurately portraying the consequences that most Gen Z high school students are facing across a diverse and wide spectrum of individuals. The job of Euphoria is to show the institutional and societal failure of a widespread group of people's inability to successfully bring the next generation into the world. But it's deeper than that also. The main arc of the series is to show the limits of utopianism at the level of the individual. It's the main argument against the proposition of trying to institute a utopian mindset within your personal domain of existence. Rue, being the most broken character, arguably, of the entire show, the one that was consumed with the most vice that nearly took her life, is the one that can see the most clearly into the issues of her time and the failed state of her fellow classmates. She's the one who understands the most because she is the one that was the most consumed with the lies. Knowing this information, she is able to show how the prospect of every character's individual version of Utopia is causing them to slowly become devoured by their own vice. And much like the numerous other ones in the show, vice serves as the gateway drug to a greater hell that one the characters are already experiencing. Remember, vice is the gateway to what we consider utopia. It is how we blind ourselves and escape the world we live in. It is how we enter into our new world that is supposedly much better. That is the story of every single character in Euphoria. They're not stupid. They realize that something's wrong that things are not right in their lives, that they, like everyone else who has ever lived, has been given a bad hand in some way or another. That they, like everyone else, has been told lies that have dampened their perceptions of both themselves and the world around them. They all, like most of us, had their innocence taken from them too quickly and too cruelly. They all, like most of us, don't take well to this realization. So, naturally, they turn to the vice that they believe will alleviate their suffering, Rue, whose father was taken from her early due to cancer, got hooked in his pain pills because her youthful innocence thought that they would make her feel better too. After he passed, she kept going and couldn't stop. For Cassie, arguably the show's most second most tragic character on the show, it was her insecurity about men after her father left her at a young age due to opiate addictions. After he left, she could never have a healthy relationship with men, which resulted in her falling in love and getting broken into pieces time and time again. For Nate, the quote, villain of the show, if there is one, it was the toxic immaturity and viciousness of his father which caused him to be a living sociopath. For his father, Cal, it was his inability to express himself in the form of his sexual identity. After he lost that opportunity, he proceeded to make life hell for his family, individually breaking each one of them while hooking up with transgender women and gay men openly in front of his sons and wife. The list goes on and on with each character. They each get deeper and more perverse the harder they lean into their vice. They each lean harder and harder into their vice to grasp tighter and tighter onto the hope that, eventually, Utopia will spring forth. They hope that their suffering will be alleviated. They hope that they can finally let, let their souls be at peace. But, unfortunately, they do not know that the place they are trying to reach is the place that cannot be. But yet they beat on like boats against the current, born ceaselessly into their horrific past, to use the words of F. Scott Fitzgerald. They want so desperately to escape. They want to dive deeper into the only thing that feeds their souls, but simultaneously into the one thing that feeds their most individualized destruction. We all do this. We are all willing participants. Anything to find solace. Anything to get out of the thing that is causing us so much hurt. Anything to distract us from our failed attempt to do the same thing outward. Anything to cling on to the hope of the one thing that the world cannot provide for them. Peace. The definition of the word euphoria is, quote, a feeling of well-being or elation. In other words, blindness. In the show, 
That feeling of well-being or elation is used to blind each and every character to the horror that they and all of us want to avoid at all costs. They don't want to look at themselves with honesty, because they wouldn't like what they see. Neither would we when we do the same thing. That's harder. That's more painful. That will take what we know about ourselves to be a lie away. It will destroy it with truth. It will shatter our utopia. It will kill the old version of ourselves. And that is something we would not dare to contend with. Euphoria, like the substances of sin and vice that we and the characters of the show consume, does not, quote, enhance an experience, to, quote a, to counter a popular point made. Instead, it does the opposite. It robs them, and us, of that experience. It provides a false idol and a fake assumption about what really occurs. The blinders are on, and the distortion panels are firing in full force. It's a house of mirrors. It's not real. Unless we make it so. When I looked at the definition of euphoria, what shocked me was, the defini- was not the definition itself. What shocked me instead were the synonyms that were attached to it. Some of them were commonplace, heaven, cloud nine, and the like. But what struck me to my core were two of them that, curiously, were stuck next to each other. Paradise and Rapture. When this final shred of hope of utopian thinking is removed, when the curtain is lifted, when the vice and sin that we consume ourselves with to blind ourselves, their false assertion of utopia is revoked, we are left with one thing. We are left with those two synonyms. We are left with utopia, paradise, and rapture. There can only be one thing left. There is only one logical endpoint. There is a singular destination to where this can lead. A lot of people have argued at the main point Sam Levinson was trying to make when he created Euphoria. What was the purpose of shedding a light on all these horrific issues that plague our young people? What is the theme he was trying to get across? I'd like to take a stab at it. The main theme of Euphoria is destruction, because true euphoria can only be one thing. Destruction. Part 4. Destruction. There is much debate on which episode of Euphoria is the best one. There are many that can take the cake, as they are all extremely high quality, even the bizarre ones where Jules and Rue just talk about their feelings for an hour with no context whatsoever. Shook One's Part 2, named after the infamous song by legendary rap duo Mob Deep, and one of the greatest rap songs ever, if I can insert my personal opinion in here, and in which the affair between Jules and Cal Jacobs is unearthed, is a great example. The finale of season two, All My Life, My Heart Is Yearned For A Thing I Cannot Name, which is a beautiful title, by the way, in which quite literally everyone's chickens come home to roost, is as well. A whole lot of people think it's the fifth episode of season two, Stand Still Like the Hummingbird, in which Rue's life completely falls apart. We'll get to that later. But my pick would be the one before the aforementioned episode, even though I think it's the most terrifying, probably. The fourth episode of season two, entitled You Who Cannot See, Think of Those Who Can. It's a fitting title given the context of the episode, of which we will get to later. Remember our theme of blindness. You you who cannot see, think of those who can. It's a call in a way. A call to reject the notion of utopia. Or, in another way, it's a call that no matter what you do, utopia will be removed from your sights. You will be forced to look at the world as it is. The vice and sin that you've indulged in, once working to your benefit, 
now only serves one purpose, to punish you for what you've done and force you to tell the truth. In that fateful fourth episode, we begin to see the beginning of the end of individualized utopianism from, primarily, the vantage point of two of the show's most tortured characters, Cassie Howard and Cal Jacobs. We've already discussed their backgrounds before, so let's fast forward to where the show has placed them now. Cassie is currently sneaking around with Cal's son, Nate, who, for the longest time, was in an incredibly toxic relationship with her best friend, Maddie Perez. Maddie, also a full-blown sociopath, and Nate have finally decided to end their relationship. Cassie, recently having her heart broken by one of Nate's old football buddies after aborting his child, is left in her all-too-familiar male vacuum. When the opportunity strikes on New Year's Eve, she finally fills it by succumbing to Nate's temptation and fucking him in a bathroom. Cassie then begins to fall in love with her own individualized utopia of Nate Jacobs. Nate, knowing that they cannot avoid the eye of Sauron that is Maddie's wrath, chooses to forsake Cassie's advances. Cassie, not wanting to lose her blindness, begins to act in obscene ways, dressing in ridiculously slutty outfits at school and acting overtly crazy and psychotic towards Nate. Nate, inevitably, resumes talking to Maddie. Cassie, already mentally unhinged, completely snaps. At a birthday party that her mother hosts for Maddie and their group of friends, Cassie cannot bear the sight of her. She is forced to see, to look at her shattered utopia, the place that cannot be. Unable to bear the pain properly, she begins to drink an incredible amount of alcohol to drown her sorrows. When she learns that Nate is coming over, she dresses herself in a scantily clad, even by Euphoria standards, bathing suit, and joins the group in a hot tub. Cal, having a sense literally knocked into him by drug dealer Fesco's adopted brother and partner in crime Ashtray, who is in the running for my favorite television character ever, by the way, via pistol-whipping him with an assault rifle, has his blinders ripped off too. Obviously bearing a substantial concussion, Cal begins to talk incredibly loosely in front of his sons, all while getting drunk on whiskey. The mask slowly slowly but surely slipping from his face, Cal decides to whip out his high school Jeep, drive drunk and reckless down the freeway, and go to his favorite pastime spot. That pastime spot is a towny gay bar on the outskirts of town. Ray realized that he had feelings for his best friend and high school wrestling teammate 30 years ago, Derek. Cal, at this point visibly hallucinating for both the alcohol and his injuries, begins to descend into madness. He recreates the entire scene of that fateful night from all those years ago from the ground up. He obliviously dances around to 80s music, hits on non-reciprocating patrons, and eventually gets himself kicked out. Laughing insanely, his personal euphoria turns into sadness. He is forced to see, to look at his shattered utopia, the place that cannot be. He gets back into his Jeep, finally living truthfully for the first time in 30 years, and drives home to his family. What follows for both characters can only be described as biblical. It's the complete expulsion of vice, of evil, from the human soul. It is the shit hitting the fan, the rubber meeting the road the car that veers off the side of the road, inevitably hitting the barrier. Cassie, Maddie, and Nate, and the rest of the group get into a hot tub. Maddie and Nate are all over one another, two sociopaths peacocking for the rest of the group at how much better they are than the rest of everyone else. Cassie sulks into the corner, face as red as her anger for Maddie, chugging alcohol like there's no tomorrow. The balloons that she has tangled herself in dancing like a crazy person inside have all left her. She has no protection. Nothing can spare her anymore. It's time for her and fate to meet. Maddie, in typical fashion, picks a fight with Nate in front of everybody. She can't help herself. 
Nate, knowing the eggshells that he currently stands on, channels his inner milk toast and attempts to vaguely dissuade her. He knows he can't win. Maybe he knows it's about to happen. Maybe he sees the car crash coming too. Maddie goes on. Picturing a life for them down the line, she finally destroys Cassie Utopia, Cassie's Utopia and allows her vice to overtake her when she mentions having Nate's children. As soon as those words leave her lips, Cassie expels her vice by uncontrollably projectile vomiting over everyone in the hot tub. Shock explodes from everyone in the group. Cassie, unable to stop puking, is left the object of everyone's vitriol. As her friends and lover abandon her in her shame, Cassie attempts to repent. She confesses. She begins to cry hysterically, repeating I'm sorry Maddie over and over again for multiple reasons that only she and Nate, and Rue actually, are privy to. Completely broken, she is left nearly lifeless in the tub, with no one to help her but her mother, who drags her barely alive corpse from her vomit, completely drenched with shame and regret. Cal gets home from his nostalgic trip, literally and psychedelically, a different person. He's liberated. He's free. In the words of both Pinocchio and Ultron, he has no more strings. To prove it, most likely to himself, he whips his dick out and pisses all over the floor, literally staining the thing that he has used his whole life to build on a lie. He takes further euphoria in this. It's not just the urine leaving his body. It's all the lies, all the deceit, most horribly the ones he told himself. Like Cassie, he physically expels all of his vice, all of his sin. He rejects his individualized utopia in favor of utopia's actual definition, destruction. His wife, obviously hearing him pissing on the floor of their foyer, runs out and asks him what the fuck he is doing. Nate, back from the fiasco at Maddie's party, and his brother join her on the upstairs banister, watching the supposed man of the house self-destructing and unraveling in front of them. His humiliation, much like Cassie's, is their horror. Once he's done, Cal turns his attention towards the elephant in the room. His life. Responding to his family's baffled looks, other than Nate, who knows, is more than, is more disgust, his is more disgust, he proceeds to finally tell the truth for the first time in over three decades. He tells his horrified second son and his wife that he fucks transgender women and gay men in a motel room regularly, some of them being underage. He doesn't love them. They're only a cover for his true identity. Everything they're standing upon is built on a lie. His lie. He brutally and falsely shames his wife for not allowing him to be his true self, still unable to take responsibility. He humiliates his second son for his addiction to pornography, saying that he is disgusted and embarrassed by him. He commends Nate for his psychopathy, still not knowing what to do with how much he has fucked him up. The most heartbreaking thing about the downfall of both Cassie and Cal is that the falls, much like Adam and Eve's, don't just hurt them. They are not the only ones who face the destruction of their individualized versions of Utopia. They also destroy those of everyone's around them as well. Telling the truth has a convenient way of forcing people to look at what actually exists. The only thing left for them, and everyone else in their position at that point, is to do what all utopianist thinkers eventually have to do. Destroy everything around them. As the show moves forward, specifically in the aforementioned episode 5 that happens directly after this, we see a peculiar divergence in some of the characters. Episode 5, it gets a whole episode because Rue's the main character, shows her world crashing down. Her becoming unhinged because of her addiction. Her utopia finally being ripped from her. She trashes her house in a withdrawal-induced rage, assaults her mother and sister, breaks off her relationship with Jules, and runs away. 
After exposing Nate and Cassie's relationship, and knowing that she has nowhere else to go, she turns to the one person she hopes will get her solace, her dealer. Lori, Rue's drug dealer and the most heartless character in the show, takes her in. She injects Rue with morphine, strips her naked, bathes her, and throws her into a guest room. Rue wakes up the next morning and realizes that she's in a bad situation. Lori had warned her that if she ever crossed her, she would sell her into prostitution until her debt is paid. Rue knows she isn't lying, and she finds a way to escape. If you listen closely at Rue as Rue does, you can hear hands clawing at a closed door in Lori's apartment, an unknown number of Rues that were unable to escape their version of Utopia. As the rest of the season unfolds, we begin to see a self-sorting aspect occur, some characters being able to escape complete and utter destruction and others not. Cal and Cassie couldn't. Rue can. Other characters follow in either direction. Why is that? Because Rue was able to escape her euphoria and her vice, at least for now. She got clean. She's off drugs. She sees things as they are. She's free. Cal and Cassie were not. They're still blind. They're still engaged in their vices, still chasing their utopia, their place that cannot be. This is how utopianism always ends. Those who are able to dodge their vice, escape utopian thinking, and avoid the traps of the euphoria that come with both, avoid their destruction. Those who cannot are consumed by it. The only way that everything can be perfect is, that if, is if everything is erased. No one can ever do what you want them to do. You cannot make everyone and anyone bend to your will. Therefore, in order to have utopia, you have to burn everything until it becomes nothing. Until you become nothing. What Euphoria tells us is that, through our participation in vice in, in pursuit of utopia, we enter willfully into the blindness of Euphoria, which then ultimately leads to our destruction. The danger of utopianism is the greatest threat one's mind can take on. That danger, expecting everything to be unre unrealistically good all the time, is never a good thing to expect. This line of thinking will always fail you. It will shackle you to a life de defined by its exact opposite, damaging and unrelenting misery. True euphoria is destruction, because destruction is the only thing that can make everything perfect. Utopia is the perfect place, but it is also the place that cannot be. When we indulge in vice, we give ourselves the opportunity to experience what utopia can be for both us and the world. When utopia begins to envelop us, we become blind to all the harm that it can cause. Eventually, the only path that inevitably form is destruction, because true euphoria is, and can only be, destruction. Just ask the 35 dicks. They'll tell you. Again, 35 dicks, people. Ask them. They'll tell you. Okay, guys. So that is um, that's the episode for this week. So that was uh, that was like I said earlier. That was a lot of fun. I, I don't I, you know I've only really done I don't think I've actually done anything like that where I've you know uniquely examined like the one thing and tried to you know extrapolate something from it. I might have done it like once or twice with the Duality of Man article and others by that. But I really liked writing that episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, it I, I thought it was I, I thought that was a lot of fun. So I've had a busy week this last couple of weeks, and I was able to find like I think you know the fact that it was so fun to write was uh, pretty pretty well taken, I think, by me. So that was awesome. But 
Anyway, guys, uh, thank you again, once again, for supporting all the launch stuff this week. Thank you for supporting this podcast, specifically this specific episode. Again, Value Economics, a study of identity, available on all digital platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ebook, hardcover, softcover, softcover ugh, audiobook, anything that you guys want to absorb, it will be there for you. More links coming next week, hopefully to get it up and hopefully pre-order soon. Hopefully we can have a big launch week, everything like that. And again, thank you guys all for supporting. So just keep an update on that. So on the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you guys next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?